everybody. Welcome to North Coast Chronicles podcast, Tales from the Great Lakes. I'm your host, Helen Brule. Please join me every month on the American Shoreline Podcast Network as we share the history, the beauty, and the adventures of the Great Lakes, America's fourth seacoast. Be sure to check out the entire collection of podcasts on ASPN related to our oceans, coast, inland seas, and natural resources. Today's podcast is called The Silent Watchkeepers, Lighthouses of the Great Lakes. I don't know anyone who doesn't think that lighthouses are cool. I mean, they live along rocky and sandy coasts. They've steered sailing ships and modern cargo carriers away from dangerous waters. They can be in both remote and obscure places, be indicative of period architecture, and accompany many a story of bravery and steadfastness. Even though I didn't think that seeing one lighthouse meant you've seen them all. I had a moment of wondering if there was enough stuff to fill an entire episode on lighthouses, but I could not have been more wrong. The United States Lighthouse Society reports that the first known lighthouse was the Pharaohs of Alexandria, Egypt, built between 300 and 280 BC, and stood a whopping 450 feet high. Sadly, it was destroyed in the 1300s. The Society also notes that the oldest existing lighthouse in the world is considered to be La Coruna in Spain from 20 BC and a Roman lighthouse located on the cliffs of Dover that was constructed in 40 AD. Now, the first lighthouse in America was built on Little Brewster Island in Boston Harbor in 1716. The first lighthouse keeper in the U.S. was at the Little Brewster Island Lighthouse. He was George Worthylake. But George, his wife, and daughter were met with tragedy when they drowned when returning to the island in 1718. Additionally, the original tower of that lighthouse was destroyed by the British, but eventually reconstructed in 1784. The oldest original existing lighthouse in America, meaning one that's never been rebuilt, is Sandy Hook, New Jersey. It was built in 1764 and is still in operation today. It's interesting, I thought it was interesting, that part of the building of the lighthouse was paid for by the sale of lottery tickets and shipping interest in New York City paid for the rest. The federal government had not yet gotten into the lighthouse business. The first lighthouse completed by the U.S. government was Portland Headlight in Cape Elizabeth, Maine in 1791. There are about 700 lighthouses in the U.S., and the U.S. Coast Guard Historian's Office keeps an alphabetical listing on each one in their location, which you can look up online. We are so fortunate to have with us Mr. Wayne Sapolsky, He's the resident historian with the Great Lakes Lighthouse Keepers Association and author of two books, Lighthouses of Lake Michigan Past and Present and Great Lakes Lighthouses, American and Canadian. Thank you for joining us today, Wayne. Thank you, Helen. Good morning. And with us, as always, is our trusty engineer, Tyler Buckingham. Hi, Tyler. Hey, Helen. How's it going? Good. For those of us north of the Mason-Dixon line, it's feeling a lot more like winter, just in time for a crisp, cool American Thanksgiving. Did you know, Tyler, that Canada also has a Thanksgiving Day? I did know that, but I don't know much about it. Well, it's celebrated on the second Monday in October, and this is because the Canadian Thanksgiving is more closely linked to the Harvest Festival, hence that autumn date. The first national Thanksgiving in Canada was celebrated in what was then the province of Canada in 1859, which was before President Abraham Lincoln declared the U.S. Thanksgiving a national holiday of thanks. But it should be acknowledged that the indigenous peoples of Canada have been celebrating the fall harvest long before either country. And one would imagine that indigenous peoples in what is now Massachusetts lands did the same. So Tyler, on the fifth episode of North Coast Chronicles Tales from the Great Lakes, we had a podcast called The Great Portage of 1829 with historian Bell Bachman and trade and compliance specialist with Canadian St. Lawrence Seaway Management Corporation, Benoit Nolet. They joined us to share the origins, construction, and modern, op- modern operation of the Welling Canal. The Welling Canal is entirely in Canada, with the first canal being completed around 1829, not that long after the War of 1812. Now, Tyler, I thought that Bell Bachman was a well of history about the engineering marvel that lifts ships 176 feet from Lake Ontario to Lake Erie. I was personally interested to learn that much of the labor and engineers for the Welling Canal came actually from the Erie Canal, which was completed just prior. What did you think about the podcast, Tyler? Well, I agree. Belle was incredible. A wealth of information. It was almost like she lived through it. It was like she was a (laughs) firsthand witness to this stuff. She was incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, she was great. She said, I, I always any excuse to talk about the Welling Canal, but she did so much more than that. And I think we all um, want to make part of our circle tour, tour stopping at Lock 3, where you have the museum and you get a really bird's eye view of a, of a ship coming in when you're looking down on top of it. And eventually you're looking up the sides of it and way above you as it's lifted on its way to Lake Erie. I certainly don't want to minimize the expertise of Mr. Nolay from the Seaway Authority, but I got to admit, I did find his Quebecois accent very charming. I'm sure you did, too. I, really? I <laughs> can't say that I did. Well, um, I did. and uh, But he was also terrific and shared so many interesting things about the modern canal and how it all operates. It's actually much more sophisticated than we all imagined. But stepping off the navigation marvel of the Welling Canal, it felt like a natural progression to talk about lighthouses. They're a big deal everywhere in the world, Tyler. The International Association of Marine Aids to Navigation and Lighthouse Authorities, previously known as the International Association of Lighthouse Authorities, is an intergovernmental organization founded in 1957 to collect and provide nautical expertise and advice. It's not part of the United Nations, but it does work very closely with associated organizations such as the International Maritime Organization and the International Hydrographic Organization. Now, the U.S. Coast Guard leads the U.S. delegation to the International Association of Marine Aids to Navigation and Lighthouse Authorities because they are the lead for deploying aids to navigation. But a number of other agencies, such as the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and NOAA, also provide expertise in this area. And I really want to give a shout out to all the technical folks in the U.S. government who are really unsung heroes on the front lines of making our waterways safe and ultimately protecting the environment. I noted earlier that there were about 700 lighthouses in the U.S. Now, Tyler, which state do you think has the most lighthouses? But I'll give you a hint. It's a Great Lakes state. Well, I, I have to confess, I, I cheated because I was chatting with Wayne you before did. the show. Uh, but I, I know it's Michigan. Okay. I know it's Michigan. Yes. And uh, good, good one. Yay. Ding, ding, ding. This episode of North Coast Chronicles is sponsored by Armbrecht and Waringa Orthodontics in Grand Rapids, Michigan, creating a healthy and confident smile since 1972. To get your confident smile, go to awbraces.com. And also by Classic Bags SP, an Etsy shop specializing in fabulous vintage handbags and accessories, supplier to the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Find your vintage style at etsy.com slash shop slash Classic Bags SP. Well, it makes sense that Michigan has the most lighthouses because it has the longest coastline. In fact, Michigan has the longest freshwater coastline in the U.S. at almost 3,300 miles. And it is more than any other state except Alaska. Now, I read where there are 129 lighthouses in Michigan, but our guest today has been to every lighthouse in Michigan and will certainly set us straight. Wayne Sapolsky, thanks again for joining the podcast. You not only visited every lighthouse in Michigan, but you have been to every lighthouse in the Great Lakes. Sounds like you were the guy to write two books on lighthouses in the Great Lakes. Yeah, it's evidence of a misspent youth and bringing out three automobiles. You know, the lighthouses for me uh, started out uh, as an off, offshoot from my um, hobby in photography. I'd always been interested in travel photography, and as soon as I got a job and had some money, the first thing you do, of course, is travel. At least that's the first thing I did. So I would go to the East Coast, and I'd go to the West Coast, and I'd go to the Gulf Coast, and I'd go to Europe. And uh, after I'd made a number of those trips, that I finally realized how unique my own backyard was. Well, what, it's kind of a fun thing because look now, you have an extraordinary collection of photos and you are actively involved in the Great Lakes Lightkeepers Association. Um, tell me a little bit about that association. I, I went online and looked at the site, thought it was a fantastic. If anybody has an interest in lighthouses on the Great Lakes, boy, do they have a lot of great information, but I was super impressed on the people who were involved. So when you think of labor of love, the people who are volunteering their time to help preserve lighthouses in the Great Lakes, it is a labor of love. Tell me a little bit about the association. Well, the Great Lakes Lighthouse Keepers Association was established in 1983. It's a 501c3 nonprofit uh, whose goal is to promote the history of lighthouses and the uh, memory of the keepers who maintain them. And it originally started out as an informal group in Allen Park, Michigan, of 
uh, descendants of lighthouse keepers or people themselves who are actually had served as lighthouse keepers, either in the old lighthouse service or in the Coast Guard. So it was a small group of people. And um, they started out, we started out with a post office box in Allen Park, Michigan. As I traveled around the Great Lakes and got interested in the history of lighthouses, um, I, I heard about the association and I joined it uh, in 1992. And I actually uh, have been a volunteer with them since the, the, the late 1990s. And the association only has two full-time employees and a couple of part-time employees. Everybody else is volunteers, including myself. And uh, I actually met my wife through the Great Lakes Lighthouse Keepers Association. Uh, over the years, they kept expanding and growing. And of course, they were trying to record, they did oral histories, trying to record the history of these old-timers who had still had firsthand memories of uh, life at some of these light stations on the Great Lakes. And the association grew, and so we moved to a location in Dearborn, Michigan for a few years. And that uh, finally ended when we moved in 2003 up to the uh, uh, Mackinac City in, uh, in Michigan at, on the Straits of Mackinac, because that was the area of um, most of our activity. And uh, in 1986, in order to prove that they were serious about lighthouse preservation and restoration, the Great Lakes Lighthouse Keepers Association took a lease on St. Helena Island Light uh, Station, uh, which is uh, up in the western Straits of Mackinac. Now, the, the uh, St. Helene Island is uh, 280 acres, and the light station itself occupies about four acres in the southeast corner of the island, a marked shoal that stuck out into the uh, water for ships transiting the uh, northern part of Lake Michigan. And um, the, uh, the lighthouse itself was built in 1873 and uh, was automated in 1923 and left the fend for itself thereafter. And uh, by the time the, the uh, Great Lakes Lighthouse Keepers Association decided to take an interest in it, it was basically an empty vandalized shell. There was barely any roof. All the windows and doors were gone. It was open to the elements. It was a complete wreck. The first three years, the association worked out there. It was just, just clearing the brush around the lighthouse so they could gain access. And um, all this work is being done by volunteers. And if you have no money and you need work done, you got to find a, a, a ready source of volunteers. And so our uh, president at the time, uh, uh, a man with great foresight by the name of Dick Mole engaged the uh, uh, Boy Scouts of America. And they he approached several troops and uh, the Boy Scouts and, and some Girl Scouts have come out year after year to do work around the light station. That's a great story. What a, what a great thing. I'd love to get a, a badge for doing lighthouse preservation work. You know, on, on the Great Lakes uh, Lighthouse Keepers Association website, there is a terrific map. Uh, and uh, it shows every existing lighthouse in the Great Lakes, both U.S. and Canada. And holy schmoly, there's a lot of lighthouses. So how many lighthouses are there in the Great Lakes? Uh, there are about 350. And, and my claim to fame uh, is that I have personally visited every one of them. That, and that, by that, I mean by boat, the way they were meant to be seen, get out and walk around, not by an airplane flying over. And this, this, this um, quest of mine began when I took a vacation to Door County, Wisconsin in 1989. And I took the car ferry Badger across Lake Michigan. At that time, we went from Ludington to Kiwanee, Wisconsin. And my plan was to spend a week exploring Dora, Dora County, Wisconsin, which is a very scenic uh, area in northern Wisconsin, kind of kind of uh, similar to uh, Leelanau County in northern and northwestern Michigan and around the Traverse City area. Well, when I got there, and this is 1989, and then Dora County hadn't really been that discovered as a travel destination, so it was not as polished and gentrified and... Uh, as it is today, it's kind of undiscovered. So uh, I went there and for the most of what I saw was fields of sunflowers, dairy cows, dairy farms. And I, I quickly realized that um, I didn't know what I was gonna do with myself for a week up there. <laughs> 
I bet it was amazing. So you're talking about Door County, Wisconsin. D-O-O-L, Door County, yeah. In case, yeah, not everybody, yeah, if you're not from the Great Lakes, you might not realize that we just say Door County and everybody knows where that is. But it is, um, I actually haven't been to Door County, one of the things I, I need to check off on my list. And I understand there is a pretty memorable lighthouse out there. It's called the Potawatomi uh, Rock Island Lighthouse. Did I say that correctly? Potawatomi Lighthouse. <laughs> well, what, what I started doing is having sailed in the Great Lakes, I knew where all these lighthouses were. And as I, when I was learning to navigate, I used to think to myself, why would they put a lighthouse there? I mean, why would they put that there? Because the, the, some of the positions of some of the lighthouses have no relevance whatsoever to modern freighter traffic. But then you have to go back and think about 150 years ago when there were no airplanes and there were no cars and the roads were rudimentary and even predated the development of, of railroads. The only way to move stuff around the Great Lakes was by water. And that's how all that's how this entire system came into being. It was the development of the of the of the Midwest of the country and the Great Lakes region depended on moving goods and people by water. And so I was up in Dora County. I started taking, there's a high concentration of lighthouses in Dora County. I started taking pictures of those lighthouses. Potawatomi Light was one of them. It's a beautiful location. It's at the tip of what's now uh, uh, Rock Island State Park in the state of Wisconsin. And um, the lighthouse has, has a uh, friends group that has completely restored it. And it is gorgeous. And it's open for tours during the normal uh, tourist season. So aren't there... Aren't there waters out there called Death's Door, real churning waters? Yeah, the, the passage between uh, Plum Island, Washington Island, and uh, Pilot Island are all there at the door or at the entrance to uh, uh, Green Bay. And um, it's, a, it's a narrow, especially if you're a, now, it, 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 it's a very uh, relatively narrow opening, three miles wide, something like that rough waters, strong currents, and in an in, in instance of reduced visibility, um, you know, it's, it's a tricky uh, spot to navigate. Now, modern navigators don't have the problem because they have radar and GPS and all kinds of other aids to navigation. But in the early days of sail, you know, if uh, you weren't quite sure where you were and you got caught in the strong winds and you couldn't control exactly where you were going, Three miles sounds like a wide opening, but it really isn't. It doesn't give you much time to recover if you find yourself in trouble. And so uh, it was. It, the passage came to be known as Death's Door. I think it also it runs back to the Native American period when uh, uh, a group of uh, Native Americans were trying to cross the area in canoe and got uh, uh, lost in a, a storm that came up suddenly. Well, it, it, um, it does explain why you needed a lighthouse there. Now, having been to the 300, I'm sorry, 350 lighthouses, did you say in the Great Lakes? Yeah, about 360. 360. So, um, golly, let me ask this, the simple, the obvious question first, which was, which is, uh, which is your most memorable on the U.S. side and then and on the Canadian side? Well, you're asking me which is my favorite, and that's like asking which child is your favorite. But I'd have to say that uh, the two closest to my home are the two of most personal interest to me because they're about equal distance, each about 90 miles away. I grew up in southeast Michigan, just south of uh, the city of Detroit. Marblehead Lighthouse in Ohio is about 90 minutes away, 90 miles away, and um, it's the oldest lighthouse in continuous operation on the Great Lakes. It's not the oldest lighthouse standing, but it's the oldest one in continuous operation. It was it went into service in the spring of uh, 1822, and it's been an, uh, an aid in navigation ever since. And it's maintained today as um, a marble by the Marblehead uh, Lighthouse Preservation Society, and um, the site is owned by the state of Ohio. It became uh, uh, Ohio's 73rd state park in um, I want to say 1998. It's beautifully restored. The keeper's home was opened as a museum. Uh, they rebuilt the life-saving station that once uh, was nearby. It, it's just a highly visited and a very picturesque lighthouse, classic conical shape, red trim on a, on a limestone uh, edge right next to the water. It's just a beautiful scenic location. And the lighthouse is not too short and not too tall. It's about 40-some feet tall, maybe 50. So it's, it's kind of intimate in terms of its size. It doesn't overwhelm you. 
My second uh, most uh, favorite lighthouse, just because it's one of the closest, is uh, Fort Gratiot Light in Port Huron, Michigan. Again, about 80 to 90 miles north of where I was living at the time. The oldest lighthouse in the state of Michigan. Uh, originally established in 1825, and the present structure dates from 1829. And it's uh, maintained uh, by uh, a dedicated uh, nonprofit lighthouse group. It's owned by St. Clair County. And uh, it's maintained as one of four museums operated by uh, Port Huron, Michigan, the Port Huron Museums. So it's one of four, four sites uh, in Port Huron that are, are overseen by them. Again, beautifully restored, still an active aid navigation, just a, just a, just a beautiful site. Well, um, the Marblehead Lighthouse is not too far from where, where I am from, the islands in Lake Erie, and I have to admit it is a nice one. But I, again, I have to confess I've never actually gone up to it. But now I'm, that's definitely going to be on my bucket list when I get back to um, the island. Um, tell me about lighthouses are interesting. I think they're all just lighthouses or lighthouses or lighthouses, and they're definitely not. And there's those on land, which I didn't even think about, and those that are near the water, and I got that. But they're made of all kinds of things. Tell me a little bit about how these are made, what they're made of, and which ones have tended to be, I mean, it makes sense that wooden ones haven't lasted as well as those that are made of, you know, concrete. But tell me a little bit about how lighthouses are made and, and what do we look for when, when we're visiting lighthouses? Well, the, main, the, the means of construction varies uh, uh, <clears throat> widely from site to site, depending on when they were actually constructed. The earliest towers were built of rubble stone or locally quarried stone by uh, pretty skilled stonemasons. And um, Marblehead is an example of that, and it's covered now with stucco. And if you look, uh, you can actually look inside the void at Marblehead and see uh, the, the airspace between the column that supports the uh, uh, spiral stairs going up in the exterior shell of the lighthouse. Uh, so the earliest towers would have been made of rubble stone. But a lot of those early lighthouses didn't survive because uh, poor construction. And you have to understand that uh, I don't think the um, contractors at the time were trying to cheat or skip by in any way, although maybe some of them did. But just think about the difficulty of getting men and materials to a remote site on the Great Lakes when your only means of getting there is by water. You have a very narrow window of opportunity on the Great Lakes in terms of storms and bad weather to get any work done. So you're going to have to start in the spring and work as fast as you can to get out of there before the end of September because in October and November, you're looking at uh, you know, bad storms. So a lot of those, you know, the difficulty of getting materials and the quality of the materials they had to work with and uh, the skill of the people involved if they're recruiting from local uh, farms that maybe have no experience in constructing a, uh, a light, you know, a, a structure like that, you can't really fault them for the fact that a lot of them uh, didn't last. Um, then, you know, the, 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 the transferred to construction amount of brick. Brick is uh, a very stable uh, material. It lasts a long time. A, a lot of the uh, pure lead lights were, are made of uh, cast, uh, cast iron, very sturdy material. Then a lot of the newer lights were a base of stone and terracotta tiles uh, over a steel skeleton. And though they've held that pretty well in terms of uh, internal structure, although cosmetically they might be suffering a bit. Yeah, I can imagine. And your point's well taken that if, you're, if you um, need to put a lighthouse in an area that's um, a dangerous area and it's got to be right by the water, it could be very challenging to get uh, uh, supplies there. Also, that leads to you know, lighthouse keepers who had to live in these places, um, which I think is fascinating. Um, are there, is there any um, lighthouse keepers really manning the lighthouses anymore? I know that some lighthouses have been purchased by people and, and obviously by nonprofits, but are there any operating lighthouses where there is a lighthouse keeper in the Great Lakes? Yes, uh, there are. Now, in terms of um, all the lighthouses on the Great Lakes, uh, in Michigan, the Great Lakes in the, on the U.S. side of the border were automated uh, by 1983. The last two to be automated on uh, on the Great Lakes uh, were in 1983. One was Point Betsy Light in Michigan on the uh, west on the eastern shore of Lake Michigan, and on the western shore of Lake Michigan was uh, Sherwood Point Light. Those were the last two automated on the Great Lakes in the year was 1983. 
the Canadians uh, completed their automation process in 1991 at uh, Cove Island Light in uh, Northern Lake Huron at the entrance to uh, Georgian Bay and the Mishapakotten Island Light on Lake Superior. One of the secrets, by the way, of the Great Lakes is the farther north you go, the better it gets. Uh, well, the scenery, absolutely, has got to be beautiful everywhere, but um, are lighthouses different up north? Well, the Canadians uh, originally, and, and still other, there are still lighthouses in Canada that are built of wood because they didn't have the money uh, to build more expensive structures. They used what they had around them, plentiful supply of wood. So there's still a lot of Canadian lighthouses that are timber-framed. And um, the Canadians were among the first people on the Great Lakes to uh, endorse and start using uh, poured reinforced concrete to build lighthouses. And they have some beautiful examples on the northern uh, lakes and on Lake Superior especially um, of, of uh, towers built of poured concrete, reinforced concrete. I'm looking at one right now that looks like they had uh, poured or reinforced concrete, the Wagoshance Lighthouse. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah, Wagoshance was uh, not poured concrete. That was one of the, that was the first offshore lighthouse built on the Great Lakes in 1851. Meaning that it was completely surrounded by water. Yes, completely. Prior to that, uh, there are locations on the Great Lakes where it was deemed too technically difficult to build a lighthouse offshore. And so they used to employ light ships or light vessels at different hazardous locations. And even those early light vessels were not self-powered. They had to be towed out into position and then picked up again in the fall. And they were often blown off station. So it was a difficult maintenance issue. I don't think the first uh, self-powered light vessel on the Great Lakes entered service until 1893. Well, uh, the first two lighthouses on Lake Michigan were 1832, that was at St. Joseph, Michigan, and at Chicago Harbor at the south end of Lake Michigan. 1832 also uh, was the first uh, light vessel established on the Great Lakes, and that was at Wagashans Shoal up in uh, northern Lake Michigan at the western end of the Straits of Mackinac. So that lighthouse, that lightship remained in service until 1851 when Wagashans Light entered service. Wagashans is stone block construction with brick, and at one point it was encased in uh, um, three-eighths inch thick uh, uh, cast iron plate metal. Wow. Tell me a little bit about, you know, when I was trying to do some homework about lighthouses, um, again, I, you know, you think it's all just one kind of thing you're going to hear about, and it's just so not like that. There's so many aspects to lighthouses, and one of them is how they're painted or decorated. Can you tell me a little bit about them? I mean, when you know, sometimes you see ones with stripes or diamonds or other things on them. Um, what does that signify? Anything in particular? And what do you call that? You call that a day mark, and uh, each lighthouse has a, a specific color or pattern to it so that mariners uh, offshore can identify their location visually if, they can, if they're close enough to see the lighthouse um, by its description and the uh, coloration it carries. So that's called a day mark. And just like at night, the lighthouses would have a specific characteristic or a, a way in which they displayed their light. It could be a steady light or what's known as a fixed light. It could be a flashing light, and, and, and there were various different flash patterns that would identify it. It could be on longer than it was off. So these are called light uh, characteristics. Yeah, tell me a little bit about the, the lights, um, the prisms, or what you call them, and the, the different ways in which they were um, lit. So like once upon a time, um, you know, uh, once upon a time, meaning hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, you basically burnt of, you know, burnt things up or had a, a bonfire on the land to help uh, provide some uh, description of where people were. Um, and obviously, um, but even in the 1700s, they had to be lit by something. How did that progress? How did they start out? And then what do you have today? Well, today all the lights are solarized and they have, um, uh, they, they utilize solar power and they are, have LED optics in them, basically. So they're very energy efficient and very bright. And they do the work that these massive lights, uh, light lenses used to do very easily. Uh, what originally started in the lighthouses is they would be um, lit by 
an array of parabolic lamps and uh, and reflectors called argand lamps. And uh, there was a, in the United States there was a, a man by the name of Winslow Lewis who was friends with the uh, people who ran the lighthouse establishment at the time, and he pretty much got them to adopt his system, which was basically a modified parabolic reflecting lens and a and a and a light produced by wick burning whale oil. And they would arrange these um, reflectors or argon lamps in arrays that what could be made to rotate within the lantern room of the lighthouse. Of course, that was a very dirty business. It didn't burn cleanly. It didn't produce a very bright light and uh, required constant maintenance. And the equipment supplied was usually inferior. And uh, by the 1830s, mariners who traveled the Great Lakes and internationally complained about the uh, poor state of the lighting the lighthouse system in the United States because the Europeans had such superior lights in their lighthouses. And that's because they were early adopters of uh, 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 a lens called the uh, Fresnel lens developed by Augustin Fresnel in 1822. And uh, those, are the light, those are the lenses you most often think about when you think about lighthouses. They're a combination of size and different uh, glass um, prisms arranged in, in a brass mounting uh, to produce uh, different types of light, light characteristics as well. The Fresnel lenses on the Great Lakes were came in seven, they were called seven different orders, ranging in size from first order being the largest to uh, sixth order being the smallest. And the Canadians even used something even smaller called a uh, seventh order lens. And some lighthouses that were very minor uh, lights were used lens lanterns. But they all worked on the Fresnel principle. And, um, you know, as soon as they had, so this was a superior system. It increased the light effectiveness by 85% right off the bat. Um, most of the early lenses came from France, then later England, and very late in the game, some were produced uh, in the United States. But it was an expensive system to purchase, difficult to install, difficult to maintain, even though it was very efficient. And, uh, you know, no sooner was the lighthouse service uh, get these things installed than they were looking for ways to automate it because it was an expensive proposition to keep keepers on site to maintain all this equipment. And so they, they originally, the original fuel for a lot of these things would have been whale oil. But by the time of the Civil War, which interrupted supplies, whale oil became way too scarce and way too expensive. So they experimented with different vegetable oils and eventually settled on lard oil, which was re readily available, and used that as a fuel, except that, of course, lard is, uh, congeals at room temperature, so it had to be heated in order to flow, in order to be burned. And uh, they eventually settled upon kerosene as the, uh, as the illuminant of choice uh, once its discovery was made and it became uh, easy to refine and uh, readily easy to dis distribute. The problem with kerosene is it's highly flammable, and when they first started putting these in lighthouses, they had been storing the aluminum fuel inside the lighthouse buildings themselves, and there were a few fires where the entire structure was lost. And this happened at a couple places on the Great Lakes. So after that, around 1890, they started establishing separate oil houses on the property around the lighthouses to store the fuel separately from this main building. So if there was a fire, it could be controlled in one location and not destroy the lighthouse itself. So if you go to these different light stations on the Great Lakes, you'll see various styles of uh, oil houses. Uh, many are built of brick to a uniform pattern. Some are um, metal, uh, square metal rectangular boxes, structures, and some are cylindrical uh, cast iron structures. But just about every light station you visit will have an oil house somewhere. Uh, of course, then they uh, wanted to uh, automate that process, and they switched to an acetylene uh, lamp, a gas that was uh, started and uh, stopped by a, a device known as a sun valve, which was invented by a Swedish inventor. And they eventually went to electric lights powered by batteries and electric lights powered by off the main commercial grid to the point now where they're at these uh, solar-powered lights that are uh, extremely efficient and require very little back up in terms of, of storing battery power.
first of all, I can't believe they're done by solar now and that they're so efficient. I mean, what you know, if 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 they're doing so well with solar and that, it's amazing that absolutely everything we do isn't solar, frankly. I know we're moving there, but holy schmoly, um, all the lighthouses are done by solar. Phenomenal. I just assumed they were done by electric, so uh, clearly I was wrong. Well, some still are. Some that are close to the commercial grid can still be hooked up uh, and, and operated that way, but if they're a good distance offshore, it's it's much more cost-effective to go with solar power. You know, you're, you talked about light ships, and I don't think people really thought about that there were light ships. It makes a lot of sense that offshore, you you would have a light ship that would be, you know, um, anchored out and uh, would maintain some sense of um, aid to navigation. But it's interesting because um, Coast Guard um, definitely used light ships, um, and they started in like 1820. And I'm kind of surprised that the very last light ship was only decommissioned in 1985. And that was the last of them. So that just, maybe the, the ship was around, they just didn't decommission it. But I find that fascinating. Um, and then also light ships is kind of a, a term now being used um, in some respects um, for virtual aids to navigation. Now lighthouses are aids to navigation. Buoys are aids to navigation. And um, more and more because of various reasons, because perhaps some um, um, inclement weather, um, ice um, issues, um, um, more virtual aids to navigation are being used, which is really a digital version of a buoy. There is no physical buoy. I just can't imagine that. I'm sure they're using lighthouses on land as as um, uh, kind of uh, vectors and stuff for, for knowing your location. But um, um, our, to what extent now are our, our lighthouses themselves being um, considered like a, is there such a thing as a digital lighthouse as compared, we know there's digital buoys, but is there such a thing? Uh, not that I'm aware of. In terms of navigation today, um, things are much different than when I graduated from school in 1981. Of course, this was before the internet and before digital anything. And um, I've been a, a guest on a, on a modern freighter just a few years ago, and I was astounded by the difference in the way these ships get around now. The lighthouses, to be blunt about it, the lighthouses um, are not really needed by major commercial shippers anymore. They provide kind of a uh, analog backup system if, if, if for some reason the digital systems or the GPS should go down. I think small craft operators and and private boaters probably depend on the lighthouses more than commercial shippers do. Um, when I started sailing, uh, the radar the, the radar sets were completely different from what they are now. Now there are chart overlays built right into the screen of the radar, so you can see exactly where you are on the navigation chart, and um, it's just it's just completely different. Uh, so the the, the lighthouse is not really needed, operate as a backup system. Um, and that's why the Coast Guard wanted to get out of the business of maintaining lighthouses. So back in, so this leads back to the creation of all these nonprofit groups. Back in the, in the uh, early 1990s, the Coast Guard pretty much announced they were getting out of the business of maintaining lighthouses. Uh, so they agreed that they would keep the lights in the towers if mariners still needed them for navigation. So they would maintain the aid to navigation, but they didn't have the time or the money or the interest or the personnel or the uh, expertise in historic preservation to actually maintain these old structures. So what they started doing is um, they uh, started turning these structures back over to the federal government for disposal. If the lighthouse had been built on public lands back in the day, the lighthouse was turned over to the Bureau of Land Management. If it had been built on property purchased on the open market from private owners, it was turned over to the General Services Administration. And the General Services Administration, for instance, publishes every year a list of uh, lighthouses they consider excess to the needs of the service. And so these lighthouses are put up for uh, disposal. 
because the Coast Guard considers them excess. Again, they will maintain, they, they query the mariners, professional mariners, to say, well, should we keep this light or should we ditch this light? And they have a 90-day comment period, and they reevaluate the responses, and they decide whether or not they're going to keep the lighthouse functioning as a, as a aid to navigation or to decommission it. And in, a, in any event, they turn these properties over to the federal government for, dispos for, uh, for disposal. They are, cons they are considered excess to the needs of the service, and the process has come to be known as excessing. And so every year around the entire country, not just the Great Lakes, the General Service Administration will um, put up a list of properties that they're going to offer for disposal that given year. Some may be on the Great Lakes, some may be on the West Coast, they may be on the East Coast or Gulf Coast, but they're all what if I new stewards for these places. Now, before any of this started, there were some uh, dedicated lighthouse groups that would go to the Coast Guard and lease a historic structure from them in order to preserve it. An example of that was our St. Helene Island Lighthouse um, up in the Straits of Mackinac. We got a license from the Coast Guard to maintain it in, in, in 1986. And then this whole pro and the, there are other examples around the Great Lakes of longstanding, successful nonprofit groups taking a lighthouse un, under their care. When the, uh, the announcement came that these properties were going to be disposed of, uh, you know, a panic kind of set in among many of these nonprofits because they had put in hours and hours of uh, uh, volunteer labor, you know, restoring these properties and tons of donations in terms of money and material. To, to do this restoration work and now it's going to be up for grabs by anybody because the federal government decided they want to dispose of it. So uh, there were uh, movers and shakers in the lighthouse community who got involved and, and they were, some of them were on the Great Lakes here. Dick Moll was a big, a big force in that. They went to Congress and lobbied for the passage of the uh, National Historic Lighthouse Preservation Act of 2000. It was the first amendment to the National Historic Preservation Act of 1966, and it provided a mechanism for the fair disposal of these properties uh, all around the, uh, not only the Great Lakes, but everywhere around the country. And so it basically put nonprofits who had been active in the uh, process for many years on equal footing with federal and uh, uh, federal um entities that might be interested in taking over a lighthouse. So the, the National Historic Lighthouse Preservation Act of uh, 2000 stipulates that, you know, when these lighthouses are announced for for uh, accessing, uh, they can be made available to another government agency like the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service or the National Park Service, get it made available to a state, they can be made available to a county, to a municipality, or to a nonprofit group. And so that put the nonprofits that were already established on equal footing with um, with these other uh, agencies. Now, if none of these other groups are interested in this particular lighthouse, it goes up for public auction. And that's how you see some of these individuals acquiring these lighthouses. Uh, they basically have to form a 501c3 nonprofit group and agree to uh, the conditions. The whole process is overseen by the National Park Service. The lighthouse is supposed to be um, restored. Uh, to a specific time period, um, that time period can be specified by uh, the nonprofit group, usually working in cooperation with their state historic preservation office. And for instance, I'll give you for instance, in uh, Point Betsy Lighthouse in the west coast of Lake Michigan is restored to the 1940 time period. Even though the lighthouse originally established in 1858 and greatly modified to its present appearance in 1894, they decided to go to the 1940 time period. Why? Because they have a volunteer keepers program, and the apartments that are built upstairs in the building were put in, that were put in for the keepers in later years have indoor plumbing. If they go back to an earlier period, they would have to remove all that indoor plumbing, and so it just makes it easier for volunteers uh, living and working on site to have indoor plumbing. You know, a modern facility. So the, these uh, lighthouse groups have to decide what their time period is. They usually work with the State Historic Preservation Office and that, and they have to agree to restore the lighthouse according to standards set forth by the National Park Service. They also have to agree at some point to use the lighthouse for educational or community purposes and to try to keep the lighthouse open for public visitation, if not constantly, at least for 
certain periods of the year or certain you know days of the week. Well, I went on the GSA site. I'm sorry, I just, I just want to mention, I went on the GSA site, and there are a lot of things for sale, but it doesn't appear that right this minute any lighthouses are for sale. But, but I, I, I guess um, what I'm hearing is that I'm really glad that the, the Preservation Act was amended so the nonprofits could have a, an opportunity to get them for free as long as they applied and had the qualifications. So um, they, they, all of that work um, was not lost. And it sounds like, though, if you want to buy a lighthouse um, on your own, there's a lot of work that goes into it. It's a big commitment. So it's not for the faint of heart, it doesn't sound like. It's a heat. Yeah, it's a huge commitment because when you think about even the sizes of lumber used now are different from the sizes of lumber that they used back then. You're not going to go to Home Depot or Lowe's and find the the type of materials you're going to need to do the work that needs to be done. You're going to have to have it all specially produced. And so, yes, it is a huge financial commitment. Yeah, so don't don't drink wine before you get on the website and start looking at lighthouses. I'm just saying you may not want to. You might want to think about it twice. Well, no, for instance, groups like the Great Lakes Lighthouse Keepers Association, we have the lighthouse uh, out in St. Helene Island. In 2004, under the uh, National Historic Preservation Lighthouse Act, we acquired the, a second lighthouse in Sheboygan, Michigan, about uh, 20 miles southeast of Mackinac City. It's the Sheboygan River Front Range Light of 1880, uh, which was occupied as a, an active Coast Guard site until 1982. It's still an activated navigation, and we're still in the process of raising money, getting donations, matching grants, getting volunteers involved, hiring contractors to get that lighthouse restored. And there are all kinds of roadblocks that come in your way because the Environmental Protection Agency might come in and say, well, you have a lot of lead paint on the site. Now the whole site's going to have to be remediated before you proceed with any additional work. That's a major expense. And, um, uh, it slows things down considerably. Now, private individuals that have acquired lighthouses are able to do it in two or three years because they have deep pockets. Now, I've been out to just about every privately owned lighthouse on the Great Lakes, and these places are beautifully restored. But, and these guys, you know, these are private individuals, wealthy business owners, uh, uh, chief executive officers of corporations that want a private home on the water. They can afford to do it, and they can afford to do it right. And uh, the, there are some beautiful, beautiful homes uh, restored on the Great Lakes that were, you know, once public properties, but now. So you asked about houses being the lighthouses being occupied. Well, in terms of the U.S. government, they're all automated, but some of the lighthouses, yeah, the ones that especially that are privately owned, are occupied at least seasonally um, during the year, and oftentimes, and the ones that are operated by nonprofits, especially if they have a resident keepers program to help run the place and maintain the place and pay for the bills, uh, will also have uh, uh, keepers there during part of the year. Well, how do those? How do you get those keepers? And the reason I'm asking is I have friends in Massachusetts who um, become like temporary lighthouse keepers, and they get to stay for free, but then they have some duties. Can you do that in the Great Lakes too? You can. There are, there are, we have a listing on our website for the Great Lakes Lighthouse Keepers Association of places you can stay at a lighthouse. Some are bed and breakfast where you're basically a paid guest. Some are volunteer openings, uh, volunteer uh, opportunities where you can stay for one to two weeks. Some require a commitment of uh, a month or more. Some re- like Point Iroquois Lighthouse up on Lake Superior, which is operated by the U.S. Forest Service, uh, uh, hopes for a commitment of one to two years to have you on site. And um, some are free, some there is, there's a minor expense to be paid, uh, but it all goes towards the upkeep of the lighthouse, so it's, you know, it's worth it. Yeah, I see that there's at least four historic lighthouses uh, in Michigan that are bed and breakfasts, which could be really cool. Um, and um, so if someone wanted to, you know, found themselves with a, a couple of weeks or more time that they would like to commit to being in a lighthouse, how would they, what would be a first step for them? The first step for them is to uh, apply to that group directly uh, and get in touch with the right people. You can do that online. Usually they all have websites mostly. Usually they also have a Facebook presence for the most part. Contact people directly. The, the requirements vary from place to, fa- place to place. They all have their own requirements and go from there. 
can can we go back to the um, the Wagashan's lighthouse um, on the Straits of Mackinac? Because story has it that it is um, haunted. Do you know the story? What's the story of the Wagashan's lighthouse? Is it haunted? What? Why do people think it is? Yeah, there's a story about a keeper named John Herman who was a jokester, a prankster. He was also an, also an alcoholic, and apparently he uh, locked one of his assistants out on the lantern room deck one night as a joke and by the time the guy was able to free himself or get back into the lighthouse john herman was missing so it's presumed that he fell overboard drunk and drowned missing and so there have been stories about him haunting the lighthouse since then but wagashan's lighthouse is is one of these places these places all have their long interesting histories and stories Wagashans was, as I mentioned, was the first offshore lighthouse built on the Great Lakes. So that was a technological marvel. It remained in service until uh, it was discontinued in 1912 because it was replaced by a White Shoal Lighthouse uh, built nearby uh, in the 1910. And the reason the White Shoal Lighthouse was built is because ships were getting bigger, wider, needed deeper water and the water close to Wagashans was too shallow so they had to move the shipping channel farther offshore so the move to, to the mark that new sh- shipping channel they built white shoal light and gray's reef and a couple other lighthouses in the area and it re- so it re- so Wagashans became redundant Wagashans was fairly intact through the 1930s and in the 1940s uh during his first second world war uh, Lake Michigan was used to train naval aviators. They took two old passenger steamers on the Great Lakes, sideways passenger steamers, and turned them into uh, aircraft carriers so that training uh, uh, aviators at the Naval Air Station uh, north of Chicago in Illinois, a Great Lakes Naval Air Station, uh, could train to take off and land without being sub- They couldn't do this on the coast because they would be um, uh, targets for submarines, enemy submarines. So a lot of naval aviators did their training on the Great Lakes, and they used Wagashan's um, lighthouse for strafing practice. They also used um, it for a training, uh, an early system of drones that were operated by uh, early TV signals. Uh, and so these drones were uh, outfitted with early uh, versions of television sets, and they were controlled remotely by pilots elsewhere, you know, in the air nearby. And so, uh, unfortunately, they used some live ordnance on Wagashan Sholite, and it caught fire and, uh, and burned into a shell. Well, I understand that uh, President George H.W. Bush trained uh, there as well. And it, there is uh, online, you can see uh, an old black and white video of them, you know, strafing and bombing the lighthouse. And it's a little sad, of course. And Obviously, it was for a, a greater cause, but still, uh, it's a little sad. But so have you? Have you? So you can't really get up onto it anymore. But you got close to it by vessel. Is that what happened? That's correct. You can get close to it by vessel if you're really, uh, if you're really determined. Of course, you can get climb up onto it. Uh, the easiest way to get out there is to go out in it's uh, in the wintertime when the lake's frozen. So just take a snowmobile out and climb up. But it's it's offshore. It's a, about six miles offshore from the tip of Wilderness State Park at the extreme northwest corner of Michigan's Lower Peninsula. There was a uh, lighthouse preservation group interested in restoring it, uh, formed uh, a couple of decades ago, and they finally gave up the ghost uh, last year and called it quits, or maybe it was earlier this year. They said, you know what? We're dissolving the 501 nonprofit. We're giving up because high water levels on the Great Lakes in recent years have done even more damage to the uh, structural base of the light tower and you know, it's basically been an empty, sh- abandoned, weather-beaten shell since the late 1940s. You know, it's it's been exposed to the elements with no care whatsoever. You know, the winters up here are harsh, and on Lake Michigan, uh, the northern regions, they're extremely harsh. So they gave up the ghost literally. Yeah, they gave up the ghost literally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you know, I, it's it's part of our circle tour, if you're one of those people who finds that fascinating, the the uh, founders, the uh, travel log folks have a website and you can, they have a list of the top 11 haunted um, 
uh, lighthouses in the Great Lakes, which includes both U.S. and Canada. So, um, folks, if you if that's something that you fancy, there's that for you as well. So, so um, tell me, um, uh, Wayne, um, how many are do you? I mean, how many photographs? I'm not how many photographs. If you're taking thousands and thousands, I'm sure. Um, but um, you know, if you have one photograph to hang on your wall. What photograph would that be of what lighthouse and what is it like? That is going to be Battle Island Lighthouse, which is on the north shore of, actually it's offshore from the north shore of Lake Superior in Ontario, Canada. And this is a, now, uh, the north shore of Lake Superior is very rugged, very, uh, it reminded me of, uh, Maine, Maine, the coast of Maine reminds me of the North Shore of Lake Superior, except there are no tides up there. And uh, Battle Island Light Station was established in the, I want to say the 1870s. It sits on a uh, prominent rocky bluff, 77 feet above the surface of Lake Michigan. White concrete, reinforced concrete tower red trim. The Canadian lighthouses are all pretty much white with red trim. People call them boring for a re- for that reason, but I don't find them boring at all. If you want something to stick out on an endless coastline of brown rocks, blue water, and green trees, what color do you paint it? White with red trim. It, they stick out. You can see them very easily. That was the whole point. And the light station was automated, you know, in the... Uh, uh, late 1880s, and my first visit out there was, uh, I can't remember the year, but the original keeper was still living out there as a retired man, even though the lighthouse was automated, but he was allowed to stay. He was a bachelor, and he was allowed to stay, and he had his black lab out there, and um, it's in a beautiful scenic location, rocky shore, blue water, and he took me onto a bluff um, overlooking the entire light station. He knew the trade, you know, he knew the island like the back of his hands. Uh, Battle Island, uh, Battle Island is about seven miles offshore from the uh, uh, northern shore of uh, Lake Superior. The nearest town would be uh, Rossport, Ontario, which is uh, which was a, a railroad stop established by the railroad there in 1884. So you have to visit, and Rossport has maybe a, a year-round population of 100, maybe. So uh, it's, a, it's a remote location. He took me to a bluff overlooking the entire light station. I, it was the most beautiful thing. I took those pictures. And for years, I've been trying to get published with my photographs. And this, you know, everybody with a camera thinks they're a great photographer. But you know what? It ain't true. And that goes for me, too. Because I would take pictures when I first started out. I thought, oh, these are great. I'd submit them for publication, get turned down. And so what I started doing is looking at all the work of all the photographers who were getting published. And I would look at their photograph of the place I'd been. And I'd look at my photograph. Which is better, mine or theirs? And you have to be honest with yourself. Theirs was better. I said, okay, I see. And so this was all done in the pre-digital uh, era, you know, this is all film cameras. Now I have been. Uh, we'll get into the digital aspect in a minute, but in the in the mid nineteen nineties, uh, the film that was available became much better. So I had started taking pictures in nineteen eighty nine, and nineteen ninety two, and nineteen ninety three, and in nineteen ninety five, Kodak came out with a new version of their Ektachrome one hundred, and there was Fuji Velvia, and there were a couple other films that were just absolutely superb. And I looked at my old pictures and I said, you know what? I got to start over because the old ones are just not up to snuff in terms of the color in these new films. And so I started all over again. If you were going to recommend to somebody who just wants to get out there and start checking out lighthouses, um, would you just say, just get in your car and go? Um, or would you, you know, kind of recommend that they take a, a go to a location and then check them out in a certain area? What would be the first step for folks? I think the first step would be go do some research online, uh, like the West Michigan Tourist Association has a great website for lighthouses lo- located along the west side of Michigan. 
uh, or the eastern shore of Lake Michigan and um, plan your visit. You know, you're not going to be able to get as far as you think in any given day. These lighthouses are farther apart than you might think. Check out the ones that are open seasonally. Try to time your visit so that you're open, so you can, you can go there when it's open if you want to go in. Because some of the lighthouses, like Point Betsy, that have been beautifully restored, have museums associated with them. Uh, you know, why go all that distance and not, not see the whole show if you're, if you're going to go? And then again, focus on the region you're interested in. Are you, are you interested in Door County? Research Door County. You know, research the area you are planning to visit. Allocate enough time, and then uh, just go for it. It took me 12 years to get to every lighthouse on the Great Lakes. The ones that you can drive up to, you can knock off in a couple of years if you're dedicated. It's the ones offshore that take all the time and planning uh, to get off to. They might also be the most exciting ones to visit. So folks, if you want to learn more about lighthouses, check out Wayne Sapolsky's two books, Lighthouses of Lake Michigan, Past and Present, and Great Lakes Lighthouses, American and Canadian. Wayne, thanks so much for taking so much time with us today. You definitely know your stuff, and we look forward to checking out lighthouses in the future. Well, thanks for joining us, and thank you to the American Shoreline Podcast Network for hosting North Coast Chronicles. I'd love to hear from our listeners. Send me your comments, ideas for future podcasts, or to be a sponsor to North Coast Chronicles at gmail.com. The views of this podcast are mine and do not necessarily reflect the views of the U.S. Department of Transportation. Join us next time for the history of the Chicago Christmas tree ships, the mystery of Captain Santa and the discovery of the wreck of the Rouse Simmons, and the Santa who delivers Christmas trees to the Chicago waterfront today. Until then, be good to one another.